Welcome, birders. This is Ed Pullen, your host on the Bird Bander Podcast, where birders talk birding. And birders are going to talk birding on this episode. Cameron Cox is my guest, and I had such a fun time and really had some interesting and new ways to think about things about birding after talking with him. But I'll get to that in a minute. It's been a great beginning to the year, this year in birding for me in Washington. Uh, I think I talked a little bit about my eastern Washington trip on the last episode, uh, but most recently I took a trip to the coast with Marion. Marion's my girlfriend, and she's new to birding, and learning birding is not easy uh, when you're not a young adult anymore. And so it's been really fun to help her develop some birding skills and and, uh, get out birding a little bit. So we went to the coast. We were contemplating whether to make it an overnight trip or just a long day trip, and so we packed up for the night like we're going to stay at a hotel somewhere, but we ended up just making a down and back trip because the weather uh, turned on us uh, late in the afternoon and we decided it looked like it was going to rain the whole next day, so we just headed home. But we had a fabulous day. Uh, some some of the really cool things we saw were a jeer falcon. This been a jeer falcon hanging out uh, near West Haven State Park in Westport, and I have to say these were the absolute best looks I've ever had a jeer falcon. This jeer falcon is hanging out on utility poles right beside a bike path. So there's a steady stream of bikers driving back and forth to stay on the bike path. So the birds seemed very accustomed to having people around and didn't seem to be terribly put off by it at all. So uh, I was right from the bike path, got some really beautiful looks at this bird, even got some pictures. It was really fun. Uh, And so I spent, you know, half an hour with the jeer falcon. Really nice experience. Don't get to, can't say I've had that kind of up close and personal jeer falcon experiences very often, if ever, in the past. So that was super exciting. We also uh, got to Bottle Beach. Bottle Beach is a place well known as a migratory stopover spot. Uh, It's the place in Grays Harbor, uh, which is a big West Coast um, migratory stopover spot for shorebirds, where the harbor fills up last as the tide comes in. And there were really high tides pretty much all day long. Uh, Even low tide was a fairly high tide while we were down there. And we got there right at high tide. And there was just a little bit of beach left. And and so a lot of the birds from the basin were just streaming in as the tide receded. So we got about 450 marble godwits, lots of black belly plover, lots of dunlin, not a not a big uh, shorebird diversity experience, but good numbers for the winter. It was really fun to see, and the weather was beautiful while we were there. Uh, so that was terrific, and just had a really nice day of birding. Found snowy plovers at Graveyard Spit, a place where we're expecting uh, to find gulls or maybe some large shorebirds, but I had not seen snowy plovers there in the past, and I was like, Gosh, how can there be 12 snowy plovers here? We thought there might have been 15, but I went with 12 to be conservative. And and I was thinking, gosh, why are they here? And I looked at the eBird bar charts, and sure enough, that last two weeks of January is when snowy plovers are more often seen at Graveyard Spit than really any other time of year. So I felt learned something new about that too. Uh, So had a great trip to the coast and it's been just a terrific start to the year for me. I've been really having fun getting some some of the really good places for winter birding in Washington. 
That said, I am really excited about an upcoming trip to Costa Rica. You'll probably hear me talk about that on this episode and some other episodes just because I'm so excited to get to some sunshine and to see my little girl. My daughter's been living in Costa Rica the last three years, and it's been, I think, two years since I've been down to visit. I had planned a nice visit last spring, and it just didn't happen because COVID struck, and now I finally have gotten my immunizations, and Marion's gotten her immunizations, and we'll have her second dose two weeks before we take off. So we're finally going to get to travel. So I'm super excited about that. But had a really nice time today talking with Cameron Cox. Cameron is my guest. Cameron's a well-known birder uh, in the ABA area and elsewhere. And I really felt like I learned some help solidify some ways of thinking about bird identification after talking with him and heard some stories. He's done a lot of hawk watching and a lot of uh, uh, bird identification at great distances on sea watches at uh, Cape May, as well as hawk watches uh, in the morning flight, all uh, as he talks about ways of identifying birds in flight through just overall impression and trying to put lots of little things together to make identifications. So he really had some good thoughts about that, and I enjoyed talking to him about that, as well as his other birding stories. So I hope you enjoy. Cameron Cox is my guest on the Bird Banner Podcast, Episode 90. Welcome, Cameron. Cameron, welcome to the podcast. Thanks for coming on. Thanks, Ed. Thanks for having me on your podcast. Uh, it's nice to talk to you. Yeah, good to talk to you, too. You're uh, just, how long have you been in Washington? I, I think of you as an East Coast birder, but then I just have been seeing your name recently on eBird, and I know you're around. What's going well, on? Well, uh, essentially, COVID happened. Uh, my wife and I were were living in, in uh, New Jersey, living in Cape May, um, but she's from Washington and wanted to get farther west. So we moved to Utah, and we spent a couple of years in Utah. And my wife got an opportunity to do a PhD all the way back in uh, New Brunswick in Eastern Canada. So she started her PhD oh. uh, in Canada last winter, and I was still in Utah. And then, of course, COVID hit, and she had to leave Canada. And now oh, right. we can't get into Canada, um, but uh, we can't. <laughs> so we can't go to where her school is is at. And we had already started the process of selling our house in Utah. Uh, so we were sort of in a bind, and uh, her parents, my in-laws, very graciously have taken us in, and they have a, a downstairs apartment in their house in Chehalis. And so we are, we and my wife and I and our two dogs and two cats are currently living in my in-laws' basement, which we thought was going to be a temporary situation, and now it looks like it's going to be a bit longer. We were a bit optimistic at first uh, as to how quickly COVID was going to pass, but uh, we're loving being in Western Washington. It's where my wife's from. It's where she loves, and and I loved it as well. I love it as well, having uh, lived here for a few years in the early 2000s. Okay, I didn't know you had spent time here before. That's cool. Good for you. Uh, it sounds like it worked out. It worked out for me. I got my uh, lesser blackback belt <laughs> of the year down near where you live. Yeah, that's uh, it's always nice was... to find a, a first county record when you're going to get gas. So that's just just about getting yeah. lucky. Yeah. Well, those birds were right. Right near the road. Oh, really? That's, that's nice. Uh, pretty nice. Did did you uh, did you just uh, were driving by and saw a flock of gulls and stopped to look, or did you pick the bird out? Um, right away? It was a situation. Uh, it's the uh, a situation where it's the combination of the cheapest gas in in Lewis County down that way, and I, I've known that that dairy field, the the field that uh, that dairy is good for gulls. So I can combine going to get gas in the car and looking for gulls. So I had planned to make a quick stop there. And then uh, I got out, pulled the scope out, 
And pretty much the first bird I looked at was that lesser blackback gull. Uh, and then it ended up being a bit, bit of a longer stop than I had expected. I suspect it did. Good for you. Well, thanks so much. Always good to get a nice uh, year bird that way. I like that. We had one here. Will Brooks found one at, uh, at Dunes Peninsula here in Pierce County last year for us. So i uh, been lucky the last couple of years on that bird. Haven't had to go to a uh, Soton or something yeah, they're, to get it. So that's sorry, they're really, uh, they're really expanding. I, where I was living in, in northern Utah, it wasn't unusual to see 20 at the landfill there. So that that's a, that's a huge change just, just in our lifetimes from being a very rare bird on these yeah. to being everywhere. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I had them last winter at the, at the dump in Brownsville. So yeah, they're there too. So, so you have spent a lot of time uh, birding. Uh, tell me your birding story a little bit. How did you get started in birding and, and you know, go through the parts you want to cover? Yeah, so I, I started birding when I was 13. Uh, a buddy of mine uh, was, uh, he, I always kind of teased him about bird watching. And, but he started taking me hiking instead of bird watching. And we, we were hiking at this uh, mountain in central Arkansas called Pinnacle Mountain. And after we got done hiking the mountain, we did this little trail at the base of the mountain that goes by this um, stream that had had lots of cypress and, and, and it was that kind of southern swamp habitat. And all of a sudden he kind of grabbed me and said, hey, there's a planetary warbler right there. And he had loaned me binoculars and I could hear this loud, uh, loud song, but I couldn't see the bird. And it took me a, a really embarrassingly long time before I saw this bright yellow bird. And I couldn't believe that I hadn't been able to see this glowing yellow thing that was right in front of me. And once I saw it, I was just completely blown away. And I pretty much on the spot from went from being a non-birder to a, a birder. And then I spent that entire summer uh, when I was 13, just looking at the National Geographic field guides in the evening and birding during the daytime. Um, pretty much that entire summer, I just birded every day. So you were hooked. Pretty much. Very cool. Very cool. You have spent a lot of time doing hawk watches, too, it sounds like. Uh, for those of us in the West who may have little or no experience with a hawk watch, I, I've, I've been to two different places. I went to the Butler Preserve when I was in the Army at New York, and, and I've been to Cape May. So they're, I think of them being coastal funnels. Uh, and the edges of mountains, you know, updrafts, sort of hawk watches. But tell people what a hawk watch is like and and, uh, and some of the places you've been. Yeah, uh, hawk watch, it's, it's amazing what you can see if you just stay in one place, um, and particularly if that place is, uh, is strategically located, as you, as you mentioned. Um, hawk watching is a humongous thing in the eastern, with among eastern U.S. birders, particularly kind of, the Allegheny Mountains and east out to the coast. And, and like you mentioned, the mountains form a uh, kind of a funnel or a, a highway for the hawks to follow. And then the coast forms a boundary where they can't go past because most of the most of the birds, the falcons, the falcons excluded, will not go out over the water. So Cape May benefits from being a peninsula, a south-facing peninsula. So birds that get blown out to the coast are following the coast south and then more and more are stacking up along the coast and all of a sudden they're at the tip of this peninsula and they have to turn around and go back uh, and in the process of turning around a lot of the mill around there uh, so you can get really good looks and see a lot of birds that way whereas the Alleghenies they're using 
the Appalachians, Alleghenies, they're using the updrafts from the cliffs and you just have birds just whipping past, often at eye level. Um, so it's a really different way of looking at hawks. Sometimes you're looking at the tops of hawks, which is something you really, that doesn't happen at Cape May. You're looking at tops of hawks going down below you along the mountains. So, and there's a lot of, there, there's a ton of history at both Cape May and Hawk Mountain and some of the other places uh, there in Eastern Pennsylvania and, and up into New York where people have been doing hawk watching for years and years. And prior to that, they were shooting hawks. Um, but it's a lot of fun. Mm -hmm. uh, it's a lot of fun. And I've also done a lot of other, um, Cape May is a great place to watch migration in general. So I did a, a, a water bird count there for a couple of years, which is was really, really fun. You get a lot more birds than you do at the Hawk Watch. And I've also counted mm -hmm. the, the morning flight there where you have warblers and other songbirds that have flown other night, overnight, have landed, realized there's not enough habitat for them, and they've been blown slightly off course, and will then take off first thing in the morning and try to retrace their steps back to where they want to be. That hawk, that morning flight is, I spent a, a week in, in Cape May or several days in Cape May, took Pete Dunn's uh, falcon class in late September. And that, that was incredibly cool. But the thing that's most memorable to me was going up and I, I was on like on this little platform. It's a, a, a platform beside the dike there where the morning right. watch happens, morning flight happens. And then leaving that and going up on the dike and just, mind-blowing these warblers and songbirds are just zipping by like eight inches from your head you know just boom, 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 and it's barely daylight and and these incredible birders are naming them <laughs> it was just to me it's like it was it was a wonderful experience not even knowing what they were uh these guys were calling them by chip notes and silhouettes and oh my goodness what a what an experience and what talent yeah. To identify it's it's each of those watches at Cape May, and I've done them all. I've counted them all. Is has things about it that are challenging, things about it that are difficult, in terms of just the the pure, just the difficulty of identifying the birds. The the morning flight's definitely the the most difficult because you have so little time from when the birds they break out of the woods and they're right going right past you, and so you have to make identifications really really quickly in order to count them. And a lot of things get past you. You have to put a lot of things down as, as species uh, because you just don't, you can get waves of birds of, of mixed species uh, and a flight, a flock could include 15 to 30 to on a big day, 80 warblers of four or five, six species. And you often just don't have time to get, get them all. And so you end up putting down a lot of species, but it's an unbelievable, it's just an unbelievable thing to experience. And, and the sea watches. Yeah, there were there were hundreds hundreds of thousands of warblers on the day I was there. It was just it, it, I, I forget the number, but and even forget the species. But it's like eighty thousand of this and twenty thousand oh. of that. These guys. Were oh, you were there. Oh you were there on that bonkers. You were there. For that that was a couple. Of, I know exactly when you were there. Yeah, that was that that was an unbelievable. Um, it's always an unbelievable experience, but that was atypical. Um, you got caught. Uh, what had probably been the best day and one of the best days in 10 years. So that, yeah, was that, that was, I, I remember reading about that with being very, very jealous because it sounded just absolutely unbelievable. It, even on a, even on an average day, it's, 
it can be uh, quite quite a lot of fun and, and a really fun thing to see. It is spectacular. Uh, so Hawk Watches, the thing that boggled me, the, the first time I went to the Butler Preserve and I was, I had been birding maybe six months. I knew nothing. Uh, and, you know, and the, the fact that uh, birders can identify these hawks at mind-blowing distance. I mean, you know, they would say, oh, naked eye bird. That To them, that meant you could see a speck in the sky without your binoculars. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it was like, my goodness. And they were calling out birds two, three miles away and identifying them. I'm like just jaw-dropping. It was really cool. Yeah, hawk watching is interesting. And I mean, the, the principles that you use to identify People think these are all different techniques, but the t- principles you use to identify hawks in flight are the same ones you did, use to identify warblers in flight, are the same ones you use to identify waterbirds in flight. Um, they're all the same. They're just adapted for different groups, um, but you're looking at the same thing. And, and then the thing about identifying birds in flight, uh, the thing that you take advantage of is as you get farther and farther away from a bird, you tend to lose patterns. You tend to lose the traditional field marks. But the thing that stays pretty consistent is movement. Movement doesn't really change that much. So once you you figure out how to identify a bird from movement and you can do it from 20 feet away, you could probably do it from 200 yards. And you may even be able to, depending on the size of the bird, to do it from two miles. It's just a matter of of kind of focusing in on the, the techniques of how, how a bird moves. So how, what... <clears throat> help us teach us a little bit G- go into that that's really i mean what i call jizz birding or you know impression birding or there are lots of names for it but uh and we all do that to varying degrees of uh efficacy but uh, are there can you teach someone that can you give clues as to what to look to yeah actually you can it's it's just being conscious while you're birding being conscious of what you're looking at um being i think the biggest barrier to it is actually believing that you can do it and and then once you believe that and there's a lot of people that never get beyond that barrier that see someone identifying a bird from great distance and, and think it's something magical but it's not it's just practice um and you're one of the things that kind of holds us back is the idea that that a field guide is the be all end all of bird identification. And and I like to say that uh, a field guide is like the tip of the iceberg. Almost all bird identification relates to things that are not in the field guide. And so when you start teaching yourself that the the field guide is not the the limit of what you can learn, um, then you start noticing things that are, noticing different things and putting different things together. And that's kind of where things become easier and you're able to identify birds in different ways. It has to help to bird with someone who's already doing it. Because I mean, how would you ever know if you're right or believe if you don't have someone there to test yourself against? Is that a fair statement? Oh, that's statement? absolutely a fair statement. I, uh, my first season in Cape May, I went, um, I came to Cape May from East Texas. I was a very, very sheltered kid from East Texas, having grown up in a very conservative background, never been away from home. And I went to Cape May and I was completely kind of completely overwhelmed by what was going on there. I wasn't counting that year. I was, uh, I was an intern that was at the Hawk Watch mm-hmm. that was, uh, I was communicating with people about what was going on there. Uh, and I learned a lot that, that fall uh, from, from a lot of different people. But the second time I went back 
I went back with, there was a guy there who was actually a little younger than me, but he's one of the, the most naturally talented uh, birders I've ever met. His name's Evan Abersian. He's a leader for wings now, but I birded with him every day that fall. And he kind of taught me there are, there's different levels to being uh, a skilled field birder. And he was on a very different level than I was. And kind of hanging out with him, seeing how he approached looking at birds, seeing what he looked at, seeing how he looked at it, taught me a lot. And I, the year after birding with him that fall, I learned so much. I was able to teach myself so much by kind of taking his techniques and applying them to my own birding. Um, but yeah, absolutely. Having someone that can kind of put you on that right path. And once, once you get put on that right path, you can kind of carry on on your own. But just realizing that there's a kind of a horizon out there that's beyond what you might first expect is, is a key element to figuring all this stuff out. It is. And, and you know, there's sometimes you just, how do you even know you just know? <laughs> it seems like it. Yeah, if you have to you think about, oh, I, yeah, that was a sharp shantok and not a coop sock because, well, just because. You know, sometimes it's hard to put words to what you know. And I, I, I don't profess to be great at exhibitors or anything else. But that sometimes you just you just know what it is just because something in your brain tells you that. It's almost like that. Yeah, that, like. that's absolutely. That's actually, uh, I mentioned to you that I talk about my birding philosophy and, and that that's actually a very big part of it is actually taking that, hey, I know that's a sharp shin hawk, not a Cooper's hawk, but I don't quite know how I know. And then just kind of thinking back on exactly what steps that your brain took to reach that conclusion. And a lot of the times, if you, if you trap practice with it, you can actually sort of kind of figure out what the subconscious method was that led you to that conclusion. And then I like to try to, mm -hmm. to kind of make my subconscious mind uh, work together with my conscious mind so I can do that with, with uh, greater efficiency, greater speed, and greater accuracy. So that, that's really what I, I, I kind of strive to do with my birding is take that impression, that, that Joe's impression, and break it down and figure it out as much as possible. So it, it makes the process more repeatable and less prone to error if you're really, if you kind of make that, take that subconscious process and, and really dwell on it and, and try to figure it out. Yeah, there are some, sometimes things like size and uh, especially size, color to a different degree depends on light, but size especially can be so deceiving uh, because if you don't have perspective, it's just a bird in the sky, you don't know how far away it is exactly. Size can be so, can fake you out. And, and so I think you have to put a bunch of things together sort of to, to figure, figure it's out. Absolutely. Like it's absolutely, it's, uh, I once, um, you know, you have that, when you're doing a birding field trip and someone will ask, well, how did you know how that was? And, and the leader will say, well, I had this field mark, this field mark, and this field mark. Well, the leader in that situation is usually lying because not, not just a very small, benign lie. The reality is, is, is it's so much, there's so much that goes into it. Um, and uh, I, I find it really, really fascinating. And like I said, I try to break it down as much as possible. There is literally dozens of things that your, your subconscious mind is kind of evaluating. And so much of, uh, of the world, our, our, our subconscious mind is sort of filtering for us um, because we take in we take in so much stimulus through our eyes and our ears, uh, through our surroundings that and 
our brains are basically human brains are programmed to ignore the stuff that doesn't interest it um, and to focus on the things that are potentially dangerous or could lead to food a very very primal um, impulses that served us well for for a very very long time um, and now we, we do the same sorts of things in a very different environment um, and you have to kind of retrain your brain as to what's important and if you look at for example if you look at a field guide um, it trains you that these certain things are important and to ignore everything else and then you kind of have to retrain your brain to oh wait a minute those other things everything everything is important you kind of have to look at everything um, and to to really get beyond that field guide level of birding Absolutely. And then add to that probability and possibility yep. and habitat all and all of the various, all the things that you, you know, you're just not looking for a, a water thrush in the middle of the desert or you're not looking for, I mean, you know, just yeah, and certain things you, you, you zero in your possibilities really quickly. And, and you know, I think one of the things that, that the best birders do is that they, they know those probabilities and possibilities, but they don't exclude the other things. So I think birds at my level probably miss a lot of rare birds because they don't even they don't even get to the realm of possibility in, in our thought process. Whereas the best birders, uh, you know, can quickly exclude the probable things and move on to the improbable things and narrow it down from there and find that rare bird. While maybe someone at my level is saying, "Well, I don't know, it looked like a warbler." <laughs> Yeah, like and that. That, that's that's yeah. absolutely true. I've seen that happen frequently, um, and that's just and part of that's just experience. It, it's, um, for example, that lesser blackback gall that I, I found. I wasn't looking for a lesser blackback gall, but I've seen literally thousands and thousands of them. So when it that bird popped its head up, I recognized it instantly, and that's not anything magical. It's just time spent in the field. It's it's a bird that I know. And so it was, it was relatively easy. If you're a birder from Washington that hasn't seen a lot of lesser blackback galls, it would be more difficult where you have all these different hybrids and it might be a little bit difficult to be absolutely certain that what you're looking at. But this, again, it's nothing magical. It's just, it's just experience and time on task. For sure. Yeah. It's always fun to get out with really good birders. You just can't help but learn something. I mean, just seeing how they think and how they work and how they function just it's so much fun. Yeah, I've got some mentors that are, you know, very good birders, and and I learn something every time I go out. Seems and like. I've been birding for 28 years. A lot of it has been pretty much professional, where it was the primary thing that I was doing. And I still aim when I go out to learn something every time I go out in the field, even if it's someplace that I know really well, because birding is, is such this. It's it's this vast, very very vast subject. So there's always there's always room to learn. And that's what I really love about it is, is I am always learning new things. It, it's uh, it is a never-ending uh, enjoyment of learning something new, uh, and and as you said, you see what you look for. If you if you're thinking about birds, you see birds, and if you're thinking about you know uh, interesting old houses, yeah. you see interesting old houses, or you know yeah. So you you see what you're looking for. Uh, one a, a good friend of mine and I were bird, were birding, and he said, my wife asked me the other day. She said, I are you always thinking about birds? Because 
no matter where we go, you'll point out a bird. You drive down the highway, there's one on the wire, and the city, there's one of the bushes. And he, he thought for a second, he says, yeah, I, I guess I am. <laughs> I guess I am always thinking about birds. Yeah, and, and that's something that I try to teach because there's a lot of people that uh, struggle because they kind of go birding on the weekend and then they shut it off during the, the week and then they pick it back up mm-hmm. and they're re- just having to relearn what they learned the weekend before. And it's kind of uh, mm-hmm. a, a corny thing, but I'll, I'll use the expression, don't turn your burn bra- bird brain off. And just keep on. Mm-hmm. Um, there, there have been quite often I've had epiphanies about birds while not actually birding, just being at a stoplight and seeing the way a barn swallow flicks and turns its body, uh, or or something like that. I'm, mm-hmm. I'm I'm kind of always processing that thing. And that if you teach if you teach yourself that, then you you will get better. Um, anyone who kind of teaches themselves to kind of keep that that part of the the bird part of their brain turned on and looking at birds even as they go about their daily lives that's a that's a really key aspect to getting better at birds and enjoying birds i think you're right before we get off the hawk watch uh, topic which is something that always is just to me is incredibly fascinating uh you have uh, you have probably done hawk watches in places in the world other than simply the east coast of, the, of north america uh what other places i, I bring this up I, I i'm going to be spending some time in costa rica and one of the top hawk watches in in north america is the kakoldi hawk watch uh, on the uh, on the Telemaca Range on the Caribbean coast of Costa Rica. And my daughter has a place she stays at down near there, so I'm hoping to get there someday. Uh, but uh, what what places have been, like, really special Well, two years ago, I uh, in the, the fall of 2019, I did the, the Hawk Watch at Panama and Panama Canopy Tower. I, I was very, very fortunate. Mm-hmm. I got a volunteer position to spend uh, five weeks at Canopy Tower. And that was just absolutely mind blowing. Um, there's nothing like just looking at a river of hawks, and then you look down, and there's a blue katinga right there. And <laughs> Canopy Tower is just one of the most awesome places to be in the world if you're interested in wildlife at all. I hung out with sloths all day. I, w- I watched this this female sloth with two babies. It's Canopy Tower is this old radar tower that was owned by the U.S. Uh, it's right on uh, the Panama Canal. And uh, a gentleman bought it, a um, Panamanian gentleman bought it, and he saw the potential in it to be an eco-lodge. And he turned it into this multi-level eco-lodge. And you have forest right around you. And so you're really at the top of the tower uh, you are right at canopy level with with all these birds and other animals, and it's just it's a phenomenal place to be. And right there, the continent Central America narrows, so you have that very narrow part of uh, Central America, the, the the narrowest part um, before it expands back into South America, and so it concentrates mm-hmm. um, a ton of migrating raptors. Uh, Broadwing hawks, Swainson's hawks, Mississippi kites, uh, and turkey vultures. And so it is the best place to just see hordes of raptors and other things too, like just unbelievable numbers of swallows, all kinds of things. So it was just an unbelievable experience to be there. Uh, I had on 
Halloween day, 2019, or 20, yeah, 2019, I had 31,000 turkey vultures in an hour, um, just in this massive wow. stream of birds. It, it was absolutely unbelievable experience. I'd do it again in a heartbeat. And uh, one of the cool things was, was you're right there near Pipeline Road, which is just a few miles away from Canopy Tower. So I have one day off a week and I would go out there and and bird along Canopy Road and try to learn tropical bird songs to the best of my ability and and pick through mixed flocks of ant birds and uh, it was it was unbelievable one of the times I was out there I was just there was this pipeline road it's this rutted narrow rutted r- road with jungle on both sides and there's it's very very thick on each side so it's hard to see in, into the jungle there were these great cowled wood rails, these great big, uh, really colorful tropical rails picking through uh, the little puddles in the road. And I'm watching these great cowled wood rails and in the in the back behind the wood rails, all of a sudden I see right through my binoculars walks this big male ocelot and I'm just shivering. Can't believe my, my luck wow. is watching this, this great, didn't even know, it didn't even know I was there. And it's, growling and walking back and forth across the road. I don't know what was going on, whether there was potentially a a, a rival that it was smelling that was in the area, but he was all angry. And uh, I watched that that animal for about five minutes. It was really, other than just watching hawks, that just seeing an animal like an ocelot in the wild was, was really a highlight of that experience. Cameron, I am really excited uh, to talk to you a little bit about Costa Rica. I saw online that you led a trip to Costa Rica with Tropical Birding or one one of the groups. And so you spent some time there. And I am going to visit my daughter in a month uh, and spend some time birding there. So give me some tips and ideas and, and about your experiences in Costa Rica. Uh, Costa Rica is one of my favorite places um, in the world to visit. And, and they've just set it up um Costa Rica and Panama both are, are are very very similar. They share a lot of the same birds. They're both unbelievable places to bird. I love them both, but Costa Rica uh, has really really focused on on developing unbelievable national parks and private preserves. It is just uh, a stunning place to be. A place where wildlife is around every corner. And I just love being there so much. I, I miss it. I can't wait to get back. Hopefully, uh, later on this year, if we can get um, vaccinated, we'll, my wife and I will get down there. She's never been there before, so we're looking forward to that and trying to plan that as much as possible. But it is just a beautiful country. It's the size of West Virginia, so it is very, very accessible. There's so many different um, ecoregions within this, this tiny little country. It's it's a place that everyone should go at, at some point, uh, and you can kind of enjoy it at whatever level you find yourself at. If you're a, a new birder, you'll you'll enjoy it, you'll love it. If you're a very experienced birder, you'll still enjoy it, and you'll still love every minute of it. It's just it's fun, and you'll love it. Yeah, tropical birding is a, a, an intense experience. It's sort of like birding in in migration in the East Coast after the. F- leaves come out <laughs> so where all the birds are above your head and you can't see them uh but even more so because there are families you're not f- familiar with if you're not experienced in tropical birding i mean families whole giant groups of birds that are like 
uh, you know, 17 different kinds of ant tanagers and this tanager and that tanager. It's like, oh, I'm dizzy thinking about it. But I am super excited to learn a little bit about it and uh, get some skills. Yeah, tropical birding is is just on. Um, it's still for me, I, and I still haven't done. I didn't get down to the American tropics until I was well into my 30s, and haven't spent nearly as much time there as I would like. It's still very much a, a challenge for me, um, and it's easier when you are at high elevation because the the families and the birds are are kind of more similar to the temperate regions of North America, and then mm-hmm. in, in the lowlands. It's every bit as hard uh, as birding in the fall in the in the eastern U.S., except much, much, much harder. And you're often birding in the pouring rain. The one, the one advice I would say is forget the rain jacket and bring an umbrella. Learn how to to bird mm. with an umbrella. Coming from Washington, that's kind of a that's something that you can actually kind of make the transition pretty easily to because it's kind of the same. You never know when you're going to get rained on. And down there, it's it's both hot and wet, and you'll steam up your binoculars if you're encased in Gore-Tex like we like to do in the Pacific Northwest. Yeah, and also be really hot. <laughs> yeah, the, it's amazing. Just a cheap little expanding um, uh, expanding umbrella in your bag in your pack, mm-hmm. and it'll uh, it's it's. Uh, you can kind of pretty quickly learn to, to use it, balance it on your head as you're looking through binoculars. And it's mm-hmm. uh, it's the, the best piece of tropical birding advice I can give. Well, that is advice I hadn't heard before. I will definitely take you up on that. I, that will be in my uh, travel pack, a small umbrella that uh, uh, is of hopefully enough quality to last a month. We'll see. If not, I'm sure I can find one there somewhere. Yeah, and and I think the, the the perspective from North America is that these places are really really backwards, and they're they're really not. Um, the the quality of life that most Costa Ricans enjoy is is uh, is quite good. You can go into phenomenal grocery stores and get unbelievable food. Uh, it, it's just uh, it it's just a, a great country to be in, and it's a great uh, country for showing the example of what what conservation can look like because they've really kind of uh, based their economy on conservation and on wildlife uh, which is kind of it's difficult in in the COVID area so it's uh, the more people can go and support them after it's safe the better because they have done an unbelievable job in in an unbelievable part of the world to protect their animals. They have. I, I, I think that Costa Rica has the highest percentage of uh, land mass set aside as preserves and national parks of any country in the world. They're, yeah. They've really uh, put their uh, effort and money where their mouth is in that regard. Yeah. Every few months I hear about some policy that Costa Rican government is doing. And I think, why, why can't we do that? This, is, this, is, this makes a lot of sense. This is fantastic. I wish we could do that. And, and then you go down there and you see how well it works. Uh, it's really, really cool. And one of the, the the other piece of advice I'll give you specific to Costa Rica is make sure you go to Monteverde because Monteverde, even when the birding, I've been there some days when the birding is not great, but the cloud forest there, cloud forest is a habitat that really, really speaks to me. And the cloud forest there is just it doesn't matter if you're looking at birds or or, or not looking at birds, you're just looking at the forest. It's this unbelievably beautiful, unbelievably peaceful place uh, that I just, I can't wait to 
get back to and recommend it to anyone. So do you have uh, recommendations of place to stay at Monteverdi? Is there a lodge there you recommend? Or uh, yeah, uh, the Mont- Monteverdi is at the top of the mountain, uh, and so the, the the town is a little bit farther down. It's actually out of the um, the uh, cloud forest uh, the region, but mm-hmm. it's still in um, some great. There's some great birding in that lower elevation area, but the, there's a the lodge that I've always stayed at, and I really really like, owned by a gentleman who used to be a guide at Monteverdi. It's called Cala Lodge, and it's absolutely a beautiful little place to stay. Um, great birding on the grounds there. It's away from the main town, so there's there's uh, a little bit of peace, and you get a different set of birds right there at Cala Lodge than you get up at, at Monteverdi on the top of the mountain. Okay, great. Perfect. Thanks so much. I'm making little notes to myself so that I can, uh, uh, so that I can uh, make sure I hit that place. Uh, so uh, thanks again okay. for the, the tips on Costa Rica. Maybe I, I'm going to spend hopefully a lot of time there in the future. Maybe we can hook up there sometime. That would be fun. Yeah, I, I would love that. It's an unbelievable place, a uh, place that I, I, you know, uh, I was hesitant. To, there was so much to learn in North America that I didn't uh, – that I didn't go there for a bit, but um, I wish I had gone there sooner and have spent more time uh, there because it is it lives up. It has a it, it's has a really well built, but it lives up to it. It's an unbelievable place. Yeah, there are places that uh, exceed expectations, even your expectations are high, and it sounds like that's going to be one of them. That is exactly the way I would describe Costa Rica. Yeah. Uh, do you have other places that you've traveled to that uh, either in the, you know, in the U.S. ABA area or outside that are just uh, if a birder only had a few places to go to, you'd say, boy, you got to go there. I would say that my favorite place to be is the North Slope of Alaska in June, the town formerly known as Barrow. And, and unfortunately, mm-hmm. I still haven't figured out how to yeah pronounce the native name yet but i I asked the previous guest how do you say that and he said barrel (laughs) yeah exactly (laughs) but that is absolutely um if you gave me one month to live uh where would you live it i would give me june june and barrow um and there are not nearly as many birds there but the experience with the animals that you get there is just uh, it's unsurpassed as far as, as as far as I've experienced. I, I absolutely love it. Uh, I remember being there, um, and you're up at the very northern point. It's the very no, there's, it's oh, it's a point on the northern port of Alaska. So you're actually sticking out farther um, there into the kind of the the barrier between the Arctic Ocean um, and the uh, and the Bering Sea. So you're you're already at you're at this point uh, of land, and there's a great big puddle there, and the female red fowler ups have kind of already done their business. They've laid their eggs in the male's nest. They're letting the males do their the male thing, take care of the take care of the young, and the females are on the way to the spa. So there there is probably three or four thousand all just absolutely stunning female red fowler ups sitting in this this little pool, and wow. then all of a sudden this Jer falcon, this gray jer falcon comes in and puts them all up, and it's like this sea of of waving pink, of undulating pink. Uh, it was just an absolutely unbelievable experience. 
and uh, yeah, that that is without a doubt my my number one spot that I would recommend, even above places that are amazing like Costa Rica and Panama. Barrow in the summertime is is my number one spot. Um, but I, every place, you know, I've not, I've not traveled nearly as much as I would like. But every place that I've traveled has been amazing. Um, Spain was absolutely unbelievable. I would love to go back there and spend more time. Um, and New Zealand was a place I really, really loved. And New Zealand is so doable for anybody. Um, and the the seabirds there, the, the, the diversity of birds is low, but the quality of the experience is really, really high. Uh, it's New Zealand is a spot that I would recommend to, to everyone. And then you mentioned birding on the Texas coast, and that is also one of my absolutely my favorite things. I've spent multiple years of, I think uh, over the course of my life, I've spent a year, over a year of Aprils in uh, on the Texas coast. So I've spent a lot of time there and have just had unbelievable experiences with birds there. So those are those are all places that I really, really love. Well, it sounds like you've spent some wonderful uh, months and days in beautiful places to birds. So I am a little bit jealous and also excited about getting to some of these places. So that sounds terrific. Uh, Cameron, I'm going to kind of wrap up with, do you have advice to birders? Sometimes uh, people who have just done a lot of things in birding in their, in their career, uh, if you had uh, any words of wisdom to pass on to uh, birders who either want to get better at birding or you know, uh, have better experience birding? Um, I, I would say enjoy, just be present when you, you, when you're in the field, it's very easy to be checking your cell phone or wondering what's around the corner. I, I find birding to be really, really exciting, but it's also really meditative for me at, at times. And, and I really like to try to find that, that meditative of state where you're just kind of really enjoying where you're at. And, and that's also where I find that I, I learn the most when I'm really, really focused on what I'm doing. And so I, I would say, try to be present with what you're doing. Also, there's there's just no limit on on what there is to learn. If you ever feel like you've reached kind of the limit of what you can learn, you haven't. There's still plenty out there. Um, I mentioned Evan Obersian earlier in the podcast, mm -hmm. and he told me once, and he was 19 at the time, so he had a lot of life ahead of him. He said, I could spend my entire life studying the birds of the East Coast and still not learn everything there is to learn. This coming from one of the, the, the best birding minds I've ever met, and I figured if, if he could do it, then, then I could do it. And when you expand that, and, and if you don't limit yourself to even a small area like that, you can just imagine that, that there's it's just a lifetime of learning. And I would, uh, uh, one very specific piece of, of advice I would say, I would say to pick up Sibley's book, Birding Basics, Sibley's Birding Basics. Mm -hmm. uh, read that once a year, every year. Uh, that was, it was intended to be the introduction to the field guide. It got too long. And so they broke it off and made it its, its own book. And it's a book that's not that's never received the acclaim that his field guides have, but in terms of learning how to watch birds, how to be how to be good at it, how to enjoy it, how to get the most out of it, I think it's probably the best book out there in that regard. 
Well, I will have to take you up at that and pull that off the bookshelf again. So that is great advice. Cameron, thanks so much for being my guest today. If someone wants to reach out to you, is a way that they uh, could get a hold of you to, uh, uh, you know, touch bases if, if that was okay with you? Yeah, my um, you could find me on Facebook. Uh, if you search the name Cameron Cox, and you'll see uh, a flying Harlequin duck icon. That's me. Um, or uh, you can reach me by email at Kumlanai, like the the uh, former subspecies of of Iceland gull, uh, at gmail.com. And thanks very much for having me on the podcast, Ed. It was very nice to talk to you. Yeah, I appreciate it. Thanks so much. And uh, you at Cope with the rest of this pandemic and uh, carry on as it finishes up. Thanks again. Take care. Absolutely. Yeah, thanks. Well, that wraps up the Burbana podcast episode number 90 with Cameron Cox. I Again, I had fun talking with Cameron. I hope you did too. I'll make sure I put up a blog post, as I always do, on birdbanner.com with this episode uh, so that you can uh, hear more about some of the things we talked about and, and explore a little more in depth. Uh, thanks for listening. If you get a chance please leave a rating and review on the iTunes uh, store, the Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcast feed. It'll help other birders know that this is a great place to listen to birders talk about birding, uh, and will help me get recognition on those uh, podcast feeds. So thanks again for listening. Until next time, good birding. Good day. (laughs) 